you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 21. This is our second to last week uh, in the book of Matthew. Uh, We're going to start in a few weeks uh, looking at the book of Habakkuk for the rest of the spring. Uh, We'll talk more about why we're looking at Habakkuk uh, in a few weeks. Uh, But Matthew 21 uh, is our text this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. Uh, This is God's word for us, his people, today. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people. But Father, you've given us your word and we pray this morning that you would also send us your spirit, uh, that you would speak words of truth and rebuke and challenge and comfort to us. Show us our sin, but more importantly, show us Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. If you've grown up in the church or spent any significant period of time in the church, I suspect that you've heard this story before, maybe even once a year on a day like today. And so what I want to do is I'm going to walk us back through the story 
And then I want to spend some time reflecting in particular on how various groups of people in this story respond to Jesus. I thought that might give us a a fresh look at this passage. The story opens in verse 1 with the conclusion of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. If you remember last week when we looked at Matthew chapter 20, Jesus was beginning his journey to Jerusalem where he knew what was coming, where he would be betrayed and delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and would be killed but would be raised again on the third day. Jesus is now on the outskirts of Jerusalem in a town called Bethphage near the Mount of Olives. What's fascinating is that it's not super clear from this entire passage, but everything Jesus is doing has significance in this story. Everything he does is tied in some way to some Old Testament expectation and hope. And in fact, a lot of what Jesus is doing is explicitly discussed in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 14.4 says this, On that day, his feet, that is God's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Part of what Matthew is doing is helping us see that Jesus' stop in Bethphage at the Mount of Olives was itself a fulfillment of what God was promising to do. This was the arrival of the Messiah to Jerusalem to rescue and redeem his people. Matthew is functionally telling us Zechariah is happening today. Like, this is it. This is what Zechariah is about. Jesus is finally coming to Jerusalem. The Messiah is finally coming to Jerusalem. And so verses 2 and 3 tell us that Jesus sends two of his disciples to fetch a donkey and her colt. Uh, And even that is a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, That is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which uh, Ed just read as part of our Old Testament reading. And what I think is amazing is the point that I made even in the children's sermon is what kind of animal Jesus enters Jerusalem on. He doesn't ride a war horse or a stallion, which was the traditional uh, mount of a king, but a donkey. Jesus is a different animal kind of king. He is a humble king, which Zechariah 9.9 tells us explicitly, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. The great pastor and theologian Martin Luther, uh, commenting on this passage, says this, Jesus rides no stallion, which is a war animal, And he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby, Jesus shows us that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them and to carry their burdens and take them on himself." We have a king who rides a donkey, a different kind of king, a humble king. 
Verse 6 tells us that the disciples do really well because that simply means they do what Jesus commands. So they go into town, they get the donkey, they get the, the, the colt, and verse 7 says they put their cloaks on the donkey and Jesus sits on this sort of makeshift saddle. And as Jesus begins riding this donkey into Jerusalem, the crowds assemble and they put their cloaks on the road and some of them go and cut down branches and put them on the road, making the road itself special because someone special is coming into town. And verse 9 tells us that the crowds go before Jesus and they come after Jesus shouting. And what they're shouting itself comes from the Bible. It actually comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They add to this passage from Psalm 118 the word Hosanna. And what Hosanna means is save us now. Like do it. Lord, now is the time. Save us now. And so what their cry is as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem is, Son of David, Messiah, save us now and save us in the highest, which means pull out all the stops. Save us to the uttermost. Deliver us completely. What's happening here? Why are the crowds doing this? There was a practice in the ancient world called a triumphal procession. And a triumphal procession is what would happen when a king or an important figure would ride into a town. And people would know that this king was coming, and those who were friendly to the king, those who were supporters to the king, they would ride out of the town, and they would get in a big line behind the king, and then they would all ride in to the town together. It was a triumphal procession. This was not an unknown thing. This was a royal welcome for Jesus. Here's a side note for you that has something to do with this passage. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul talks about what happens at the end of the age. And he says, some of us will be caught up and meet Christ in the air. Some have taken that to be this idea that uh, as the end of the age comes, we are taken out out of earth and taken up into heaven. In reality, what is happening in 1 Thessalonians 4 is Paul is telling us we are going to meet Jesus in the air and then follow him into the new creation, following him in triumphal procession into the world made new. So when Paul says we're meeting Jesus in the air, we're not escaping from earth. We are entering into the earth as it was meant to be and as it will be restored by Christ. Your prelude reflection this morning came from 2 Corinthians 2.14 where the apostle Paul says, praise be to Christ who always leads us in triumphal procession. We are following the practice of the ancient world. We will enter the new world 
behind our victorious, conquering king. That's what's happening here in Matthew 21. You're getting a foretaste of this triumphal procession as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He is getting the royal welcome. And honestly, here, the crowds do really well. They get what's happening. They are excited. They see that Jesus is their king, even. That's what they are saying. However, these same crowds fail spectacularly in five days. The same crowds that shout Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, are the same ones who shout crucify him, not five days later. This helps us. It helps us to realize that. Because it helps us to understand that getting things once is not a guarantee that we've gotten them forever. The gospel never gives us grounds for self-confidence as if we learn lessons and then we're just sort of done. Like nailed that, nailed gentleness, uh, nailed patience. Uh, I no longer have to deal with those things. We are always in danger of forgetting the gospel, which is why it is so important that the gospel constantly be before us. The great uh, theologian uh, Leonard Cohen, I think, uh, captured it well in his song, Hallelujah, when he says, I've seen your flag on the marble arch. Our love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Friends, the Christian life is not a victory march until the day our king returns in conquest. Until then, we are a lot like the crowds and will continue to forget and need to learn again. So Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's gotten a royal welcome, and verse 10 tells us that Jerusalem is completely stirred up. This is the second time in Matthew's gospel that Jerusalem has gotten turned into upheaval. The first time, if you'll remember, was way back um, in August. Uh, And that was when the Magi came to Jerusalem saying, the king has been born. Where is he? And everyone gets all in an upheaval back in Matthew chapter 2. Jerusalem has been turned upside down again by the entrance of her king. And I think if you want to get a sense for what this was probably like in terms of disruption to daily routines, you've got to think back to the great Disney movie, Aladdin. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, Even the Will Smith version has this same uh, scene in it, and it is when Aladdin enters into the city. Do you remember this? The Prince Ali song? And everyone's like, Prince Ali, y'all with me? Y'all are like not nodding. Yes, you've seen this movie, right? This was like big deal. Um, I'm not that out of touch. Uh, That's what this is like. The whole city grinds to a halt because something magnificent is happening. And people are like, who is this? And in verse 11, you hear people are saying like, oh, this this is a prophet. This is Jesus. He's from Nazareth of Galilee. In North Carolina, when people were from small towns, we used to say what county they were from. And I tread lightly because I've heard a lot of you say you're from Fauquier County. So this isn't a joke. 
Uh, but you know, you'd meet people and you'd say, where are you from? They'd say, oh, I'm, from, I'm from Surrey County or I'm from Stanley County, Stanley without an E. Don't get that wrong. <laughs> Jesus is not from a place people know. That's why he is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, which means our humble king is not just a humble king. He is a humble king from nowhere. That is Jesus. So he arrives in Jerusalem, and he goes to one place. You see it in verse 12. He visits the temple. And when he gets to the temple, Jesus drives out the merchants who are buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus says in verse 13, this temple is supposed to be a place of worship for the nations. And Jesus is calling to mind there Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. The temple is a place of prayer and healing for the nations, not a business opportunity. Zechariah 14 says the same thing in verse 21. It says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day when the Messiah arrives. It turns out this humble king from nowhere is also a mighty judge. And what Jesus does is he drives out what makes the temple sick. But he doesn't just drive out the things that are wrong with the temple. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus actually restores the temple to what it was meant to be, a place of healing and a place of worship. Jesus welcomes, the text tells us, the blind and the lame, and he heals them. By the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees, the blind and the lame were forbidden from entering the temple and the temple grounds. Jesus says, no, you come, you're welcome. Verse 15 says, Jesus also welcomes these children who are noisily and inappropriately, right, adoring him. They come into the temple, which is supposed to be, I mean, grown-ups would say, the temple is supposed to be a quiet place, a somber place. But Jesus says, nope. Y'all come, you are praising me with reckless abandon. One of my favorite things about a parent was watching like young kids eat. Like kids just eat with reckless abandon. Spaghetti as a hand food, just like. Like that reckless abandon that children bring to spaghetti is the same reckless abandon that the children in this passage bring into the temple when they are praising Jesus, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Between this and the healing, the scribes and the chief priests are indignant. And they turn to Jesus in verse 16 and they say, Do you hear what these people are saying? Like, Hosanna to the Son of David is is you claiming to be something big. You are allowing these kids to say this in the temple. They are saying blasphemous wrong things in the temple, and you're just permitting it. And Jesus responds with, like, what is this epic response? He says, yep. You know, my Bible says that you're supposed to worship God in the temple. I mean, that Jesus, like, takes their concern and just, like, blows it up. He's saying they are crying out. They're doing the right thing. They are worshiping me. This is my 
temple. That's why Jesus quotes Psalm 8 there. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. That's not praise of some guy. That is praise of God. Jesus is saying these kids are doing the right thing. This is a mic drop kind of moment. You see, the priests and the merchants found religion to be kind of useful. For them, religion was a way to have money. It was a way to have power. It was a way to have influence and reputation and control. And friends, I hope you can see in some small measure that we all have that same tendency, that same temptation in our own hearts. We miss the gospel, though, when we turn the gospel into a means of controlling our lives. If we do things like reading the Bible or attending church or praying or giving or serving, if we do those things even unconsciously as sort of payments given to God in hopes that he'll make our life better, when we do that, we're making the same mistake that the scribes and the priests and the merchants make. When we're expecting that God is going to give us happiness or peace or comfort, or ease in our lives because we've been so good. We miss the heart of Jesus. And that's why after Jesus drops the mic on the chief priests and scribes, verse 17 says, he leaves Jerusalem and goes to Bethany. He gets the royal welcome. He fixes the temple, even if only briefly, and then leaves and goes to Bethany. It's fascinating to me how all of these different groups of people throughout this passage respond to Jesus. Some receive him, some reject him. And it's always important when we read in the Gospels to figure out where are we in the passage? Like where should we identify ourselves? Here's where I think we are in this passage. We are everyone, always. We are everyone in this passage, always. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we're the disciples. Sometimes we actually do what Jesus says to do. We seek to do what Jesus commands, and when that happens, Jesus encourages us. But when we fail and fall, he picks us up and restores us. Sometimes we're the crowds. And and we cry out and we celebrate Jesus. And when we do that, he receives our praise. He receives our worship, just like he receives the royal welcome from these same crowds here. But when we get tempted to think that we've gotten it and we become self confident, Jesus gently over and over again reminds us of our foolish hearts, and he offers himself to us again. Sometimes we are like the blind and the lame that Jesus welcomes into the temple, and we are trapped in our weakness and our inability, whether that's physical or spiritual. 
And when that happens, Jesus always welcomes us. Jesus always invites us to bring our needs to him. And he heals us again and again. All we need is nothing. All we need is need. Sometimes we're the kids. Sometimes we just loudly, maybe even inappropriately, loudly celebrate Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus delights over us with reckless abandon and accepts us. Jesus delights when his children are loud and inappropriately happy about him. But sometimes we're the merchants and the priests and the scribes. Sometimes the idols and the false worship of our heart, uh, the idols of control and ease, those things cloud our hearts, they cloud our judgment. And when that happens, what grace looks like from Jesus is Jesus comes and turns the tables over in our hearts. And that hurts. But friends, that's grace. And grace hurts. He drives those idols out of our hearts again and again. You see, what's even more important than who we are is knowing who Jesus is. Jesus is the humble king from nowhere. And he is the mighty judge. And because he is both of those things, a week after this passage takes place, he is also the crucified and the risen Savior. That is the whole reason he rides into Jerusalem at all. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though we see our hearts in all of the different responses to Jesus in this passage, we thank you that you are gracious and you are gentle with us. And that, Father, where we cling to sin and idols, you heal us. Where we are unable and weak, you bear with us. Where we are right, where we're doing things well, even if imperfectly, you encourage us and strengthen us. But fathers, in all and all of these things, in Christ, you save us and you redeem us. Father, we pray now that as we come to your table, you will encourage and strengthen us again. We pray that you will be at work in us, that you will anchor us in the truth of this mighty king from nowhere. Father, we pray that you will make us pictures of your grace, that you would take ordinary bread and an ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to make us pictures of Christ in the world. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.